Today's message I've entitled, Does the Resurrection Matter? Particularly in a Culture of Chaos. In his award-winning publication, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel shares a provocative story of catastrophe and logic. He writes, in 1963, the body of a 14-year-old, Addie Mae Collins, one of the four African-American girls tragically murdered in an infamous church bombing by white racists, was buried in Birmingham, Alabama. For years, family members kept returning to the grave to pray and leave flowers. In 1998, they made the decision to disinter the deceased for reburial at another cemetery. When workers were sent to dig up the body, however, they returned with a shocking discovery. The grave was empty. Understandably, family members were terribly distraught. Hampered by poorly kept records, cemetery officials scrambled to figure out what had happened. Several possibilities were raised. The primary one being that her tombstone had been erected in the wrong place. Yet in the midst of determining what happened, One explanation was never proposed. Nobody suggested that young Addie Mae had been resurrected to walk the earth again. Why? Because by itself, an empty grave does not a resurrection make. And this is from The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Today we celebrate an empty tomb. But it's not merely an empty tomb It is a tomb that's empty because the person there physically arose. Physically arose from the grave. It was the fact that Christ physically arose from the dead and dwelt among His people once again. Our claim is not that Christ rose and no one has seen Him. It is that Jesus rose His flesh and bone, walked among His people, then ascended into heaven. His resurrection was witnessed by over five hundred people the the resurrection of jesus christ is the greatest event in the history of the world both for believers and non-believers the evidence and the impact of christ's resurrection is with us today millions have been set free in christ millions have been born again literally lives have been changed and some of you are witness to that some of you are that some of you can tell stories of how you used to go out and you know do things that you don't do today primarily because of where you are in Christ Jesus millions have laid their lives down for the cost of Christ and the belief of the resurrection and they're still doing that today and so consequently the resurrection and the evidence of the resurrection 2,000 years later is still going forward in the lives of millions of people millions of Christians who follow Christ let me give you other evidence the church is alive across the globe millions live by the fact that Christ is risen And think about all of the efforts throughout history to stamp out the church of Christ. And all have met with failure. And let me give you a bulletin. I don't care what you hear on the news. I don't care what you're reading about, you know, the the wickedness in Washington and the decisions are coming. Here's a bulletin for you. The church is never going to be wiped out. Period. Until Christ comes. And Christ has His way. The church is constantly advancing in the world. It is constantly advancing against the gates of hell. One of the greatest places experiencing revival today is Iran. Iran, one of the toughest nations, one of the most anti-Christian nations, and the church is advancing against it. So don't be feared. Don't listen to the politicians. Oh, they're going to do away with religious freedom. Don't, Don't buy it. If they do away with religious freedom, if they illegalize Christianity, and I could see that happening, if they do all these things, the church will still go forward. No one could stop it. Jesus said, this is my church, and I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So don't buy the rhetoric and the nonsense you hear today. 
The gospel of His resurrection has been preached to the four corners of the earth. The gospel continues to go forth into every nation, whether it's legal to do so or whether it's not. Whether there's punishment for preaching the gospel or whether there's freedom, people are coming to Christ from every tribe, every language, and every tongue. But increasingly, we're being told today, particularly in the Western world, that the resurrection doesn't matter. Our country continues to move in a direction that not only negates our faith, but is beginning to harass, criminalize, and persecute our faith. We are being told that our faith is irrelevant, that it should only be held in private quarters, and that what is more important are the, 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 the issues of the day, you know, racism and inclusion and all this other stuff. Those are the things that really matter, as if man can solve man's problem. Where's the track record for that? I one time had somebody say to me, I don't understand how you being an intelligent person could believe in God. And I said, well, thank you for calling me intelligent. You know? <laughs> I took that as a compliment. But he said to me, I don't understand how you could believe in God. You know, where's the evidence? Where's the proof? And I turned around and I looked at him and said, you know what? I don't know how you can believe in man. Look at the history of man on the, on the earth. Look at the wars, the hatred, the vitriol, the venom, the racism, every kind of thing. And since man's creation, man cannot bring about peace. You talk about everybody. Everybody, what do you want? Remember Miss America? I want world peace. I want world peace. Where is the peace? Where is man's humanity toward other men? Some of the greatest technology that has ever been developed in the world has been developed because of weapons of destruction to kill other men. How can anyone have hope in man? What future is there in man? So when somebody rebukes you and tells you, I don't know how you could believe in God, challenge them and say, how can you believe in your fellow man? Even in this day and in this culture of, quote, Tolerance, tolerance is only defined as if you agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, you see the worst kind of intolerance, the worst kind of hatred, the worst kind of venom coming out of the peaceful people. But I boldly submit to you that even though our culture has descended into a, a, a paganistic World, and that's what we're in, by the way. By the way, what you see in America is paganism running amok. We're like the city of Ephesus. We're like the city of Corinth. Actually, we're probably a lot worse, to be honest with you. But I submit to you boldly on this Sunday that the resurrection does indeed matter. It absolutely does matter, and it matters not only in a culture of chaos, but it matters in the lives of every single person, because it is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whether you believe and entrust yourself to the finished work of Christ on the cross, or you reject, every soul will be confronted with this truth. And I further submit to you that the church is not dead, that the tr Christian church is growing. More and more people are coming to Christ. And that is due entirely, entirely to the empty tomb. To the resurrection. And more and more people are turning to Christ. Jesus is still the main person in history. And He's coming again. And He's coming again for His bride, the church. Unstained. Unblemished glorious, magnificent. He's not coming to rescue a church that's faltering. He's coming for a glorious bride. And consequently, the resurrection does matter. Here at Calvary, we believe in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me say that again. We believe in a literal, physical resurrection resurrection of Christ from the dead. We believe on Good Friday our Lord physically died, remained in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea for three days, and on the first resurrection Sunday, He 
physically walked out of the tomb. That after his resurrection, he ate, he drank, he was able to be touched. He was not a spirit, but a man with flesh and bones, his wounds still visible. Let me read to you from our confession, the Calvary Confession, what we write. We believe that Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son, one in nature with the eternal Father, the eternal Spirit, the triune God, who is creator and life giver as well as sustainer of the universe, who was born of the Virgin uh, Mary, the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully divine and fully human, whose life on earth perfectly pleased God, whose righteousness is given to all who by grace through faith become one with Him who is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that pleases God, and whose death under divine judgment paid in full the penalty for the sins of the people, providing for them forgiveness and eternal life, who is alive, having been physically raised from the dead by the Father, and whose resurrection was witnessed by over 500 people. This is part of the confession we give every single person who desires to become a member in this church. You must be in agreement with that doctrine that he physically arose. The Christian life is centered on this truth. It is centered. It is anchored. It is bolted. This is the cornerstone. Christ is indeed the very, very cornerstone of the Christian faith. Eliminate the resurrection. You have nothing. Nothing at all. And that He was truly God. That only Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sin and new life. That our lives are here to reflect that truth. That the church is to reflect that truth. And that's why we contend for the faith with the Word of God. Not against other men, not against other philosophies. We contend with the Word of God. And it is this truth that becomes the anchor in the midst of cultural chaos around us. So I want to go, as always, to the Scriptures. And I want to find this in the Scriptures. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to be looking primarily at two verses, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. And from the Scriptures from the living, inerrant Word of God to understand why the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'll read it and then we'll go through the text. Therefore, since we so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right away, uh, those of you who have been here for a while, the first word you see there is therefore. We know it's a conjunction. We know it's joining two independent thoughts. So what two independent thoughts is it joining? Well, it's joining the end of chapter 11. And if you know anything about Hebrews chapter 11, you know it is the hall of faith. It is in Hebrews chapter 11 where the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith. And he goes through some of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And he ends chapter 11. I love this, by the way. He ends chapter 11 in verse 37 through 40 where he writes, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's amazing that he ends the hall of fame, if you would, for the Christian saints of the Old Testament with that description. They were ill-treated. They were destitute. They were naked. They walked around in caves. They walked about wild. But why? 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 Because they held to faith. 
Now, they did not know the resurrection. They did not see the resurrection. They did not bear witness to the resurrection. And this is where the therefore comes in. So whenever you see therefore, you hear me say it all the time, look to see what it's there for. Another way to remember therefore is in light of what I just told you. In light of what I just told you becomes the therefore. So it refers to chapter 11, all the great heroes. And he says, therefore, since we've so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the cloud of witnesses? It's all the Old Testament saints. It's all those who have gone before us. In light of their testimony, he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. What are the encumbrances? The encumbrances are those elements of the Jewish law that would weigh a person down. In the current context, it would be everything that we saddle ourselves with that is not faith. All the tradition, all the formalism, all I was born this way, I'm going to live this way. All religious, exterior religious worship that is not born in a heart of faith. Lay it aside. Put it aside. All things that religions superimpose over and above the Scriptures. I love that we're a church of people. We're a Bible-oriented church. We're a Gospel-believing, Bible-believing, preaching church. And that we take our direction from the Word of God. Later in the service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Why are we going to do it? Because we like to do it? No, because it has been given to us in the Word of God and by our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I want you to lay aside every encumbrance. And he also says, I want you to lay aside the sin. What is the sin? These are works not of God. Not born in faith. Self-righteousness, unbelief. We know that the sin, the wages of sin is death. We know that all of our self-righteous works are as filthy rags to God. Nothing is more important in your relationship with God than a pure heart. That you're there not for what you get, but you're there for what you adore. That you're there because you love the Lord God. I woke up this morning with so much joy in my heart. I didn't wake up this morning with joy in my heart because of what I did. I woke up with joy in my heart because of what He did. Many of you received texts this morning. He's risen, and He's risen indeed. And that is the result of joy. Because He has risen. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. Because He is risen, we who are in Christ have a certainty of what? Of a resurrection. Just as He was resurrected. And the writer of Hebrews screams out to the unbeliever and and, and to the believer, get in the race. Lay aside those things that are holding you back from a full surrender of a risen Christ. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And we saw that even though they praised Him, and they praised Him from the Scripture, majority of the people who worship Him had the right object of worship, but they had a wrong heart. Today, on Easter Sunday, all over this nation, many people will give in to a form of religion, and the object of their worship is right. They're going to worship Christ, or so they think. But in their hearts, they are wrong with God. The most important thing is that we know. That we know Him. And we know Him, as the Greek word says, experientially, not intellectually. I say this many times. There are many people who have a lot of knowledge of God and hell is going to be filled with a lot of people that have a knowledge of God. And they knew the God of the Word. They knew the Word of God, but they didn't know the God of the Word. And my prayer for everybody in this church, my prayer to everybody listening to this message, is that you would come to a place where you know the God of the Word. You know Him experientially. You know Him, not merely intellectually, but you know Him deep, deep, deep 
within your heart. Let me share something. Intellectual facts about Christ do not save. I want to say that again. Intellectual facts about Christ do not save. Raising a hand, walking an aisle doesn't save. Saying a prayer doesn't save. What saves is a broken and a contrite heart. What saves is repentance and entrusting yourself solely to the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. We all need to get into the race. Hebrews 12, 1 again, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And notice what he says here. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life. Following Christ. Paul uses the metaphor as a race. What kind of race is this? Is this a 40-yard dash? Is that the Christian life? No, it's more the marathon, right? You can run a 40 and 4.3 like some of the guys in the NFL do today. It's not going to do anything for you in your Christian life. We are to run the race, and he uses two key words here. One is endurance, and the second one is race. That word for race, the Greek word agion, we get, it's the same word we get the English word for agony. It's the exact same word. And he says, we are to run this race, we are to run this agony with endurance. And the word for endurance means to remain under a load. So we're to run the Christian race, this agonizing race, with endurance. And while we're running with endurance, we remain under a load. And that load are the pressures of the world and all the issues of this life. And we are to persevere. We are to see it through. We are to continue going. Now, I've never run a marathon in my life. I think you find that incredible looking at my body. You probably say, this guy's probably a marathoner. Uh, But uh, I've never run a marathon in my life. When I used to train for football, you know, I could go three miles. Four miles was really tough. If they said five miles, I said I quit. But um, running has never been my forte. But uh, I had some friends that not only ran marathons, but did some uh, triathlons and a few other different things. And one of the things that they all say about uh, anyone who's ever been a marathon runner is they say at the 18, 19 mile mark, they call it the wall. You hit a wall. And like you feel like you can't, you're not going to be able to take another step. And what really gets them through is not their physical conditioning. It's their mental discipline that gives them the ability to break through, right? And that those last few miles, those last nine miles, are the most difficult of the entire race, which I find hard to believe because to me it'd be mile one, I think, right? But they hit the wall. That's what he's comparing the Christian life to, is that we get into these times when trials and testings and persecutions come around us, and we are to persevere through. We cannot fall in mile one, mile two, mile three. And so we are to go. We are to run. And in order to run successfully through, we need to lay everything aside. Every encumbrance. Every weight. Right? If you're running a marathon, the last thing you want is excess weight to be carrying with you. We need to lay them all aside. And many in our Christian, uh, many in, in the Christian world today, they start out in a great sprint. They run that 4 3 40, but then all of a sudden, as the worries of the world and the troubles of the world come upon them, all of a sudden they begin to kick back and begin to quit. This is the admonition here. And I'm going to get to the point of where the resurrection is in just a moment. However, we shall see if our eyes are fixed on Christ, if we look toward Him, if we see His example, we find in Christ that staying power, that resurrection 
power to move us forward in our faith. And so what do we do? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The author refers to Christ, to the resurrected Christ, by two specific descriptions. The writer of Hebrews writes to encourage those Hebrew Christians in the first century in such a manner, and he writes to encourage them with what? We'll see in verse 2. With the resurrected Christ. With the resurrected Christ. Even back then, in that first century, the thought of the resurrection, uh, a resurrected Jesus Christ was equally repulsive back then as it is today. In his book, Unshakable Truth, the author Josh McDowell quotes philosopher Stephen Davis. He says this, Early Christian proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem would have been psychologically and apologetically impossible without the safe evidence of an empty tomb. In other words, without the sage and agreed upon evidence of an empty tomb, the apostles' claim would have been the subject of massive falsification by the simple presentation of a body. And look what he writes. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He calls him the author. And probably what this word basically means is the first in a line of a procession. A file leader, a pioneer, one who who blazes a trail. He says of Christ, he is the author. He's that trailblazer. He's that pioneer of our faith. And the second word he uses is perfecter. And properly, that is a consummator. Bring a process to its finish. Specifically, that refers to Jesus, the one bringing life of faith to its complete conclusion. Simply put, Christ is the pioneer and the consummator of our faith. And He is the perfecter. He holds it all together. Now how does He do this? The risen Christ, because of His complete and perfect sacrifice, is the only one capable... The only one capable, the perfect sacrifice, the willing sacrifice, He's the only one capable to make atonement for sin. As a result, He has perfected salvation once and for all. Now, early Christians during the time of this writing were beginning to and experiencing long periods of persecution. And not persecution like we see today. They didn't suspend their Twitter accounts. They didn't get bumped off of Facebook. And, oh, I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. I can't get on Facebook. But they were being threatened with life and death. Life and death. They were being ostracized from society. It's a very interesting thing. If you ever study uh, history of Roman Christians, they have found in the 20th century, they started to find these underground cities where Christians lived because they were so ostracized from the society above. They lived down there. They had their businesses down there. They did everything underneath the city. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this group and he's encouraging them. And in verse 2, he's going to encourage them with simple truth. And that simple truth is look at Christ. Look at the resurrected Christ. Listen to the words of Peter in his Pentecost message in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of Christ, and these are the words of Peter. Speaking of Christ, and God raised them up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. In verses 31 and 32, he says, He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. Now let me ask you a a question. Did the resurrection of Christ matter to the Apostle Peter? You're darn tootin' it did. As a matter of fact, all the apostles die martyrs' deaths. All of them. And what was the thing that they all proclaimed? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The cornerstone, the hallmark of the Christian faith. George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening, pointed this out when he said, It was never heard since the world began that any man, much less a whole set of men, died martyrs for the sake of an untruth when they themselves were to reap no advantage from it. The eyewitnesses weren't gullible, mistaken, or deceitful. They preached the highest ethical standards the world had ever known without personal gain. Many were willing to die for their faith, revealing their genuineness of belief and that what they said was authentic and trustworthy. Who dies for what they truly don't believe? And they went out and they proclaimed what was probably the most ludicrous thing ever heard to until that time. That Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. Scripture tells us he was witnessed by 500 people. Scripture tells us that he was able to be touched and he was able to be handled. And 2,000 years later, people continue to die for the witness of Jesus Christ and for the resurrection of the dead. We are here today as Christians. We are here today as Christians because People gave their life for the gospel, which talks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. Here the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 tells us not only to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, but he makes another great statement that I love. He says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross Jesus bore that load, and he persevered under that load. Friday night, we talked about our victory was won at Gethsemane. As Jesus went into the garden kneeling and came out of the garden and arose, and he went and faced directly his betrayers. The crushing weight of sin of all who would come to Christ throughout the ages placed upon him on the cross, and our Lord held up under the crushing load. Isaiah 53.10, we've talked about this a lot. One of the most unbelievable, unimaginable verses in all of Scripture. Isaiah 53.10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him if he would render himself a guilt offering. While on the cross the Lord remained under the load of sin, and he did so joyfully. Joyfully. Who for the joy, that Greek word kara there, for the joy. Who for the joy before means to extend, to lean towards the favor of God. And what drove Jesus' joy? That joy was before Him was the delight of doing the will of the Father. Of being that perfect sacrifice for redeeming the children of God. In John 6, 39 through 40, Jesus says this, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The all that Christ refers to is the all who are called to repentance and faith. The all that Jesus referred to in John chapter 6 is all of all time whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. The all here is everyone who would entrust themselves by faith to Christ and Christ alone. If you are in Christ, you are one in them. If you have not come to the place of repentance and faith in Christ, if you have not turned from your sins and confessed Him as Savior and Lord, If you have not entrusted your eternal soul to Christ, you're not of His. And let me say something. I don't say that with the light. I say that with the utmost dread. 
Here at Calvary, we preach and we preach with enthusiasm and we preach with passion and we preach with passion the joys of Christ and the blessings and the immeasurable goodness of Christ. But we preach with passion that all would turn from their sin and trust in Christ and that you would know that you are indeed saved. No one here should ever go to their impending death beyond their deathbed with any kind of doubt because you hear the gospel day in and day out and the gospel calls men and women to turn from their sins and turn to Christ. And if you haven't done that, I say to you like Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe and trust yourself completely and wholly. Entrust yourself like someone jumping out of an airplane who has a parachute and is going to deploy that parachute and is trusting that parachute to land safely on the earth. Entrust yourself to Christ and be saved. Christ's deepest pleasure was completing the will of God. John 43. Uh, 4.34, he says, My food is to do the will of the Father. Our greatest pleasure can be found in the will of God as well. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, keep following me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the resurrected Jesus now. The author, the perfecter, the pioneer, the one that blazed the trail, the one who pulls it all together, who for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And I've said this many times, and I hope you know this by now. To despise the shame means that He thought little. He thought little of what he was going to endure, of being convicted as a common criminal, of hanging naked on a cross, of being beaten, of being pierced, of being mocked. He thought that was not even worth it. That's what it means to despise the shame. He thought it wasn't even worth it. No big deal. If it means the redemption of mankind, no big deal. Boil that down a little. If it means the salvation of you, 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 man, that is nothing. I will do it. They will mock my name. They will put a false accusation above my head. They will sit there and say, hey, if you're the Messiah, come on down. If you come on down, we're going to believe you. We're going to follow you. They're going to punch him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to mock him. Did you ever see a crowd around a person that was so desirous to see them suffer? You see the maliciousness and the hatred and the venom that is turned toward Christ. And he said, that is nothing. Father, you asked me to fulfill the will, and I'll do it. I'll do it. That's not even a cost. That's what it means when he says he despised the shame. And here, he talks not only about the cross now, but where is this Christ? He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Resurrected. Resurrected. Hey, Hebrew Christians, I know you're enduring. I know you're persevering. I know you're struggling. I know some of you are counting as the cost worth it. I am going to tell you by the resurrected Jesus Christ, follow His example. Endure the cross. Despise the shame. One day all of this is going to end. One day the people who are persecuting are going to end. But I'm going to tell you, look at the resurrected Jesus Christ. Look at Him because He endured and He said, is sitting down now at the right hand of the Father. Christ became a curse for us. The writer of Galatians, Paul says this in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Does the resurrection matter? The writer of Hebrews thinks so. The resurrection was the thing that was going to govern their lives. And the resurrection is the 
the very object that governs our very life. Does the resurrection matter? Does it matter in a culture of chaos where, where we're being seen as, uh, by the way, you see this new term, Christian nationalist? Christian nationalist. So if, if, you, if you're a Christian and you love your country, you're a Christian nationalist. But does it matter in a culture of chaos? Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the grave. Over 2,000 years later. Take a look around the room. We all come from different cultural backgrounds. Some come from the Middle East. Some come from the islands. Some come from America. Some come from all over the place. We all have different cultural backgrounds. But what is the common thing that draws us together? Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, Him crucified, Him buried, He rose from the dead. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later. Does the resurrection matter? Absolutely. Are souls still being saved? And people born again? Is the church still advancing in the world? Lives are being changed by the power of that resurrection. The resurrection matters. It mattered to the early disciples who all died for that simple truth. Some people say, well, John wasn't martyred. Well, I don't know about that, you know, being exiled on an island out there. It mattered for the first century church, which built upon that truth. Here's an interesting thing. Turn to Acts chapter 3, just real quick. I just want to show you how the first church dealt with this. So we know what happens in Acts chapter 3, right? Peter and John go up to the temple there by the gate called Beautiful. Is a guy who's sitting out there begging for money all the time, Right? He's, he's invalid. He's unable to work. And we know the very thing that Peter and John did. Another great moment in history, right? Silver and gold I have not. But what I give you, in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. What happens? The guy gets right up. Now, I want you to get this for a quick minute. If the person never walked, Let's, let's just look. I know we have a lot of medical people here. So, If a person never walked, that means their entire muscles were atrophied. Right? It's not like they had strong legs, you know. If you've ever been laid out in the hospital, I've had the dubious pleasure, right, to have multiple knee surgeries and everything. And you lay, you lay around for three days. You first get up, you're like, you know, you're like a wobbly, right? But a person who's never walked has never developed muscle in their legs and all the, you know, all the ligaments and tendons and all the things that cause them to walk. Upon the word of the apostle, he got up and he walked. Pretty, uh, pretty good miracle, right? It's not chump change. Right? He gets up and he walks. Now, you would think everybody would be like, wow, look at this. Wow, we've seen this guy every day we go to the temple. I've never seen anything happen like that. Why, you know, why doesn't he walk? No, what was the reaction? First thing they're going to do is they're going to call in Peter and John. And they're going to say, listen, stop preaching in this Jesus name. And by the way, I want everybody to know, it's the same Sanhedrin that crucified Jesus, Right? So it's the same Pharisees. It's Caiaphas and his group of mafia little boys there. Same guys that crucified Jesus. And just, just to get the, the, the text here, right? They're warning them. In verse, in chapter 3, you know, they're saved. And then in chapter 4, Verse 1, it says, And they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain and temple guard, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. Now, Sadducees didn't believe in any miracles. They would be the equivalent of theological liberals today. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus what? 
The resurrection of the dead. That was the thing that ticked them off. They're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they laid hands on them. That doesn't mean they prayed for them. It means they grabbed them and took them to jail and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed and a number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas, remember him? The high priest was there. Caiaphas, remember him? John and Alexander and all who were uh, high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name have you done this? Notice Peter. Remember foot and mouth Peter? Peter who can't say anything right. Peter who denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them rulers and elders of the people if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well let it be known to you all and to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ the nazarene whom you crucified notice whom god raised from the dead by this name this man stands here before you in good health for he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder, which became the very cornerstone. And there is neither salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What is the thing that Peter does? He proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if Peter was a fraud and they were threatening him, and let me tell you, you think Peter and John knew that they had the power to do to them like they did to Jesus? I'm fairly confident that they felt like, yeah, these guys, if they want, can torture us. But they never denied the resurrection. Does the resurrection matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. It mattered to the reformers. It mattered to the great evangelists, the preachers of various revivals throughout history. It mattered to the saints that went before us. It mattered to my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother, my father. By the way, all of whom handed down the faith of me and all of whom on their deathbed all of them confessed the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It matters to many of you in this room here today who have built your lives and your families around that truth. It matters to me, which is why I share this truth. But does the resurrection matter to you? Does the resurrection matter? You bet it does. Listen to the words of Jesus. With this I'll close. John eleven twenty five to 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question everybody has to answer. Do you believe this? That he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of Apostle John in John 20, 31. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in His name. Does the resurrection matter? The resurrection matters so much that it will determine your eternal destiny. And so we call for you if you've never surrendered to Christ. We call for you to entrust yourself now completely, wholly, and totally to Him. 
When you entrust yourself to someone, it's like, hey, telling them, fall, I'm going to catch you. And the person leans back and they're willing to fall because they trust that you're going to catch them. It's the person that's drowning that, that swims to the life raft and is able to lay hold of it and get inside the life raft. It's the person on the crashing plane that straps on the parachute and jumps from the plane knowing that's their only shot at life, pulls the ripcord and entrusts themselves to that parachute. Have you entrusted yourself to the one and only Savior that can save you? There will be no last-minute timeouts We don't know if we're going to get the opportunity to say, hey, I'll think about it on my deathbed. God commands that today when you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. But today is the day of repentance. And repentance simply means turning from yourself and your sin and turning to Christ. You were heading south, you turn around, and you're heading north toward God. Don't leave this place today. Please, I beg you, with everything in me, without answering that question, have you entrusted yourself completely and wholly to Christ? Because I'm going to tell you, the resurrection matters. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your many blessings. And Father, I pray that if there are any here today to whom, Father, you have extended your hand, you are convicting, Father, that they would cry out to Christ and say, God, save me, a sinner. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the resurrection that enables us to come here week after week, Lord God and to declare your truth 2,000 years later. And Father, Lord God, if in your providence you have ordained for us to suffer for the cause of Christ, may we not bow our knees to Baal, Lord. Now, Father, as we gather around the Lord's table, as we come at this time, May your hand be upon us, and may we glorify you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.